And then for those uh, who are interested in what's happening uh, in light of uh, prophecy, and maybe you're, not a, you're in a church where it is not taught and you are interested in that, I've mentioned some sites already. Let me mention another tonight, Lamb and Lion Ministries. And uh, they are going to have a two-day conference somewhere down the line here, not too long from now, I think. So uh, you can watch that from home. So you can check that online, uh, online, Lamb and Lion Ministries. The founder is David Reagan, if you come across another Lamb and Lion uh, place. And then I thought I would mention as well tonight, um, I, I read an article this week uh, from a magazine in Israel. It was Messianic leaders were calling for three days of prayer and fasting, and they said Israel has sinned. And they were calling for three days of uh, fasting. And uh, uh, one of the things they mentioned, there was this big party where so many people were killed. And this is what they said. The Nova Party, uh, among the scenes of the October 7th attack, at which our young our youth were dancing around a large statue of Shiva was reminiscent of the sin of the golden calf and a clear warning of its consequences. Though we do mourn with all those who have suffered and lost their loved ones at this event. Well, it was a very ungodly event and they had a statue of, a, of a, some kind of an Indian god at this, which I have seen in pictures. And so they were calling for uh, prayer and fasting for Israel. They said Israel has sinned, and among other things, I, I guess you will know. Tel Aviv is one of the uh, most LGBTQ-friendly uh, places in the world. So uh, Israel does need prayer for that. Well, we're looking at the blessed hope of the Christian and that is that the Lord Jesus is going to come into the atmosphere before the great and dreadful day of the Lord in which God's wrath will be poured out on this world and he will catch up the believers to take them to glory. Now, uh, I was talking to my wife about that today. What a tremendous hope this is. Think of if the future is going to get this dark, and if it is shortly going to be upon us and the majority of Christians who will become Christians at that time will die, what a huge hope is it that we would be delivered from this time? That is our subject. And uh, this is what I would say. It is not just wishful thinking, though we wish that. It is not wishful thinking. It is based on Scripture. And so in the uh, last session, we saw that the rapture is a biblical subject and that a number of raptures have happened already, and at least two more are coming. They are prophesied clearly in the scriptures. We also learned that the claim that the rapture teaching is new and was never taught until the 1830s, which is what people will say against this teaching, that that is not based on facts. It was taught long before. And then we asked if the rapture happens and uh, then Jesus comes to earth to rule after that, are there then two comings or is there a second and third coming? And 
We said that generally it is explained as Christ coming in two phases. Once he comes, not down to earth, but he comes into the atmosphere. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 clearly says that. And then he returns to heaven with the church. And then uh, at what we call the second coming, he comes down all the way to earth and then rules on earth for a thousand years. Now we want to uh, answer the question as to when the rapture will happen. We're not talking about the calendar date. Nobody knows the calendar date. We're talking about will it happen before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end? And we will answer that from some general teachings and then from some specific passages. So when will the rapture happen? The three prominent positions are that it will happen before the tribulation or in the middle or at the end. And for a good number of years, this was a great debate among Christians. So any older Christians listening to me, you will remember maybe the 70s and the 80s and uh, the rapture was taught all over uh, North America at least. You would hear this commonly in churches and today you can go all over and you will seldom hear it in most churches. So uh, for a good number of years now I have heard very little taught about the mid-trib position. It seems to have lost, uh, it seems to have, there was a time when these views were being hammered out and it has kind of fallen by the wayside. The post-trib view, although probably more popular than the mid-trib, uh, still taught by some, but it's, it seems to uh, have largely fallen by the wayside too. I was talking to somebody this week, and I might have told you this, but uh, I was talking to someone who had come out of the traditional Old Order Mennonite church, churches, and he had talked to one of his fellow men, maybe somewhere back in the eastern states, Pennsylvania or somewhere, and he said, well, I'm, I'm going to a prophecy conference. And the guy said, well, what kind of prophecy conference is it? A premillennial prophecy conference? And, the, and he said to him, well, have you ever heard of an amillennial prophecy conference? <laughs> They just don't happen. There's not too much to talk about. So we're talking about the rapture and the view uh, that Christ will come before the tribulation. And why do we believe, or some of us at least, that he will come before the tribulation? What is the biblical ground for it? Well, I want to give you why I believe in this teaching. And this is my view. I believe this is the most accurate teaching of Scripture on this subject. So number one, we're going to begin with Titus chapter 2. You might want to turn uh, to Titus. We're going to read verses 11 through 14. And the best thing is to see these in our own Bibles. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope uh, 
and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Now this passage teaches us that the reason uh, of Christ uh, or that the return of Christ is a blessed hope. It is a makarios hope. In my understanding of that word, it means that those who have this hope are to be envied. They have something to be envied for. You see, uh, their hope is a hope that causes one to rejoice. Now, if, listen, if the great catching up was to happen in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation, would you rejoice that the rapture is coming? Would you rejoice? Well, in that case, the Antichrist and the tribulation have to come first. That would kind of dull your hope. It may even be that one would dread the teaching of the rapture because the closer it gets, the closer we are to bad things not good things. If the rapture is in the middle or at the end of the tribulation, then we must wait for Antichrist, not Christ. Listen, if he comes in the middle or at the end, he cannot come today. He cannot come tomorrow. He cannot come for at least three and a half years and maybe seven. There is no blessed hope right uh, now. So uh, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, Paul, way back in the early days, at the beginning, had already taught these brand new believers about Christ's coming uh, for the church. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, For they themselves, that is what others had said about the Thessalonians, declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now these people were serving idols. Paul came and preached the gospel and they got saved. And now they were serving the living God. And then, verse 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul had taught the Thessalonians much about the return of Christ. To them it was a blessed hope. Why? Because when Jesus comes for the church, he delivers them from the wrath to come. Now the wrath to come is God's wrath on the world. It is the uh, and Jesus delivers believers from this coming wrath. That is the blessed hope. Now let us say for a moment that Paul had taught the Thessalonians that there would come a great tribulation, and it's coming. During this tribulation period, many, if not most, Christians would die. By the way, it will be a slaughterhouse for Christians, and there will be many of them at that time. And then he taught them that in the middle or at the end of the tribulation, after the Antichrist had had his sling and most Christians had been killed, then Christ would come and catch up the church. Would that be a blessed hope? 
somebody has said, well, that would be a, a blasted hope. We're looking for Antichrist and trouble, not for deliverance from the wrath to come. And the question is, would you anxiously wait for Christ to come? Well, that means you're waiting for Antichrist to come and lots of trouble to come. You want it to come so you can get over there. But would people anxiously wait? Well, I think we wouldn't. But now let us say Paul had taught them that the tribulation time was coming, Antichrist was coming, great tri trouble would befall this world, but before that time, Jesus would catch the believer up to glory, and then the believers would go to those mansions Jesus said he was preparing. Would this be a blessed hope? Well, uh, this is what we're looking for. This is what our hope, this is our blessed hope. Now I want you to notice something special. Verse 10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised uh, from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What is this wrath to come? Sometimes this as, is viewed as, this is how I would have viewed it as well. This is hell. That's the wrath of God to come. Hell, from all I can find, never speaks of the wrath to come. You know what hell is? The justice to come. It's justice. So here's the wrath to come. And this wrath to come, it is the tribulation. Now, I haven't taken the time here, but if you go through the tribulation again and again, when you come toward the end, it's the wrath of God being poured out on this earth. That is the wrath to come. So just turn over to chapter 5, verse 9. What we read here takes place in the context of the day of the Lord. And it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not appointed the believer to the wrath to come. The salvation spoken of here is not salvation from sin. It's salvation from the wrath to come. Now, that is a blessed hope. That is something to look forward to. But if we are to experience half of the tribulation first, or all of the tribulation before Christ comes, would you wait with anticipation for him to come? Well, you know, there's lots of trouble coming first. There's a second reason why I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. That is because at the end of the tribulation, there must be people who are alive, who enter the millennium and repopulate the earth. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 20. I want to show you that the Bible says the world, the earth, is going to be repopulated during the millennium. So we'll read verses 7 and 8, Revelation chapter 20. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Listen, 1,000 years earlier, all the living non-believers were cast into hell, and only believers went into the millennium. Now we're at the end of the millennium, and the earth is filled 
with people. Where do they come from? Well, there's only one place they could come from, and that is living believers who came alive out of the tribulation. You know what uh, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 30? That uh, when people have been, once they have been changed, they have resurrected bodies, they are like the angels of heaven, they neither, what? They neither... No, neither married nor given a marriage. They are like the angels, and the angels don't repopulate. If all the unbelievers die, and all believers are uh, uh, changed at the end of the tribulation, as in the post-trib view, there's nobody to repopulate the earth. So, um, if the rapture happened in the middle of the tribulation, then it is possible that some living believers would still be alive at the end of the tribulation, but not if the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. If the rapture happens at the end, there is nobody left to repopulate the earth. But if uh, the Lord comes before, well, those that are alive, and there are some who are going to come alive uh, out the other end of the tribulation, they are the ones that will repopulate the earth. Now think about this. If there was no war, uh, let's, let's, say, let's say two or three hundred people come out of the tribulation the other end. That's very few. If there was no war and people lived long ages, how many people would be on earth after 1,000 years? That would be filled. It would be filled. And that's what it says here will happen. So when Christ sets up his kingdom on earth, believers who do not have resurrected bodies will repopulate the earth during the millennium. We know that relatively few living people survive the tribulation. During the tribulation, most Christians die. Well, I'll tell you what. You want to know what the tribulation is like, all you have to do is read Revelation 6 through 19. Uh, you will have a very good idea. That's a small portion of what the Bible has to say about this time. So at the end of the tribulation, all unbelievers are cast into hell. That leaves those who are alive to repopulate uh, the earth. Now let's say the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation. All unbelievers are cast into hell and the bodies of all believers are changed into their immortal state. If all believers are cast into hell after the judgment at the end of the tribulation and all believers are changed, there's nobody to repopulate in the millennium. That's a reason, one of the reasons why it has to be either in the middle or before. There's a third reason why I believe the rapture will occur before the tribulation. We learned in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, how many weeks were determined on Israel? 70 weeks. They were determined on Israel and Jerusalem, not the Gentile world. 69 of those weeks were fulfilled when Christ died, and the Jewish nation, as the people through whom God worked, came to an end, and the church age began when Christ, after Christ ascended to heaven. The 70th week is the tribulation to come, and once more it has to do with the Jewish nation. So the 70th week is determined not upon the church, but upon Israel. So here are 69 weeks, then the church age enters here, 
And then here you have one week. This is upon the Jewish people. This is upon the Jewish people. Here's where the church enters. So Israel is pictured in the scriptures as the wife of God. Let me give you an example. Why don't I just read these for you? Jer you can jot them down if you wait. Jeremiah 3.14. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, uh, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Then in verse 20. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with, treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Now you might want to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. The uh, scriptures represent uh, Israel as the wife of God. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and on, uh, we have an account of where the church is pictured as the bride of Christ. I'm going to read verses 22 through 27. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now this speaks of Christ and the church. Now the wife of God and the bride of Christ are never mixed up in scripture. They are two separate entities. If the church goes into the tribulation, then Israel and the church are mixed up. So what happens in between? Well, what happens in between and the church, a Jew and Gentile become one. Here's Israel. Here's Israel. Here, Jew and Gentile become one. And so the 70th week has to do, the tribulation has to do with the Jewish time period. And... Uh, you know what Matthew 24 says? Matthew 24 says this, Pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath. It has to do with the Jewish people. So we find support of this in the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 deals with the church. And we'll find it there in seven churches. And then in chapter 4, after the seventh church, John is caught up to heaven. It's a rapture. And then chapters four and five tell us what it is like in heaven. And then in chapters six through 19, we have the tribulation. And uh, so this uh, chapter uh, 19 gives us an account uh, of the closing time of the tribulation. You might want to turn to Revelation chapter 19. It's such a crucial chapter. It is the end of the tribulation. And we'll start in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. 
So here we have come to the end of the tribulation. From here on, God will reign. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Well, it's come to the marriage supper. And his wife, see, she is in heaven. This is the end of the tribulation. She's in heaven, not on earth. And his wife has made herself ready. That's what verse 7 says. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here's the bride of Christ who has become the wife, and she is dressed in white, and we note that she has made her own dress. It is her, her righteousness that makes up this dress. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Well, who is that? Well, that's the church. He's in heaven, coming down with Christ. So we have this scene in heaven, and the bride of, bride of Christ has become the wife of Christ. The tribulation is not yet quite over, and the bride has already become the wife of Christ, and she is in heaven. So this makes me believe that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. The view that the bride of Christ is not on earth during the tribulation is further strengthened by the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a very chronological book. Here's how chronological it is. You know what? Chapter 1 gives us an introduction. Chapters 2 and 3 uh, tell us about the church. Chapters 4 and 5 give us a scene in heaven. Chapters 6 through 19 give us the tribulation. Chapter 20 gives us the millennium and the short season. And 21 and 22 give us the new heavens and the new earth. And you cannot get more chronological than that. So what is significant is that when you study the tribulation in chapters 6 through 19, you know what is significant? You will never find the church. It's not there. When you do find her in chapter 19, she's in heaven, not on earth. So there is yet another reason why I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. The return of Christ is likened to a wedding in various scriptures. In Jewish weddings, they had the betrothal first. It was something like our engagement. And uh, it was usually arranged by the parents. The betrothal took place usually about a year or so before the wedding. Uh, it could be longer. And after the marriage agreement, 
the son would prepare a place at his father's house for them to live when they got married. So they would leave the bride's place, go back, and, and he wouldn't see her again until the wedding. Then when all was ready, he and his attendants would make their way to the bride's place of residence. She would be expecting him, but she never knew when he was coming. He could come at midnight. He could come at any time of day. She never knew. She had to be ready at all times. However, when he, he came, she was ready because she knew he would come sooner or later. She just did not know when. After his arrival, he would take her back to his father's house, and there the marriage would take place. Well, this is exactly what happened with Christ and the church. He has been betrothed to the church by the father, he has gone back to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride. He's going to come and bring her and take her back to his father's house. And that's where they will live for the next seven years. And so here, here's the bride. She, as soon as she has been promised to this man, she goes home. You know what brides do? You know, they, they make a dress, right? <laughs> they do all kinds of stuff. And, and she made sure that by the time he would be coming, she was ready. And she never knew when he would come. It's such a perfect picture of uh, the rapture before the tribulation. There's a fifth reason why I believe Christ will come before the tribulation. Matthew 24, 36 through 39 teaches that when Christ comes on earth, it will be life as usual. We won't take time to read. We've read this a number of times. Uh, we've discussed it. However, if the return of Christ is in the middle or at the end of the tribulation, especially at the end, it is not life as usual. And I think we covered some of that already as well. It is anything but life as usual. As a matter of fact, people are begging to die. They are afraid of the wrath of the Lamb that's coming. And the book of Revelation gives us this uh, several times. So if the return of Christ is post-tribulational or even in the middle, I think it will not be life as usual. In the middle of the tribulation, you know, there's a very significant advance. It happened right in the middle. Antichrist sets himself up as God in the temple. And he will be worshipped. You don't worship him. You can't buy or sell. That's where the number 666 comes in. So uh, it will not be life as usual for believers in those times. But what will life be like just before the end of the tribulation? Well, it's anything but usual. So uh, when, when Christ comes, what will it be like? Like this. Like this. We're expecting to do something tomorrow right? That's how it's going to be. We're expecting to do something and not going to happen. It'll be over. So there are just a number of scriptures that talk about this. Then there's the sixth reason why I believe the rapture happened before the tribulation. Uh, let me read for you Matthew 24, 41, 40 through 41. It says this, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other 
left. Now, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine this, but try to imagine for a moment what happens on Earth when all over there's one taken and one left. Now, these passages are somewhat controversial, even among those who believe Christ will rapture the church before the tribulation. So let me go over some of this with you again. As I view it, Jesus is saying that Christians are always to be on the watch because no one knows when the day when he is returning. So it is imperative to be ready at all times, just like the Jewish bride was to be ready for the bridegroom at all times. I view this passage as a passage referring to the rapture, not Christ's coming at the end of the tribulation. Others, however, say that this passage refers to the end of the tribulation and that uh, one is taken, uh, is taken in judgment as it was in Noah's day and the one left, uh, the one who is left is left on earth to inherit the kingdom of God, which happens at the end of the tribulation. And this is where even pre-tribulationists are not agreed. However, Jesus makes no connection between Noah and judgment. That is, to read into the text. The purpose of the illustration of the days of Noah is to show that when Christ comes for the church, it will be life as usual. So which view is right? There are three words that one uh, must deal with. The first one is took. In verse 39, it talks about they, they were took in the flood. So those who hold that, uh, that this refers to Christ coming at the end of the tribulation say the word took in verse 39 refers to those taken in verses 40 through 41. But that is not so. The word took in verse 39 and the words taken in verses 40 through 41 are different words. The original word in verse 39 is iro. But the word taken in verses 40 through 41 is paralambano. Uh, the use of these two words, iro and paralambano, is interesting. Now, there are various passages uh, talk about that. John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus said, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life, that I may take it, labo, lambano, it again. No one takes Iro it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Now, here we have these two different words. Interesting also is the use of the word paralambano. Anyone here can quote John chapter 14, 1 through, say, 3 or so, 4. Yeah. I went on, so I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In my father's house are many mansions. Here's the place where, this, where the son went back to his father's house to prepare a place uh, for his bride. Uh, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And so he said, he is going to come back and receive us to himself to take us there. And that is uh, this place. So, and, and the word there is not the word used here, took. The word there is paralambano, which is a different word. 
But the biggest evidence that this passage in Matthew 24 refers to the rapture and not the second coming is the word left. It says one will be taken and one left. They are not left to go into the millennium. They are left to go into the tribulation. And that comes from this word left. It is the word aphiemi, and it has the idea of to abandon, to forsake. Now, somebody who's going into the millennium is not abandoned or forsaken. Somebody left to go into the tribulation is abandoned and forsaken. So the one uh, that is left is forsaken or deserted. Thus, I conclude this refers to the rapture and not the second coming. The one taken is taken to heaven. The one who is left is forsaken to go through the tribulation. It is for this reason that verse 42 says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And that's what we're instructed to, to expect him at all times. Now the last and biggest reason of all why I believe that Christ will come back for the church before the tribulation is that it is a general teaching in the New Testament that the coming of Christ is imminent. You know what that means? That means he could come at any time. Listen, if he is to come in the middle of the tribulation, he can't come at any time. He can't come at least for another three and a half years. It means he can't come for at least seven years if it's at the end of the tribulation. Then the tribulation has to come and run its course first. Uh, when the Antichrist confirms the covenant for seven years, from that time Christ's coming will be seven years away. So in a sense, you could say this, if his coming is in the middle of the tribulation, you know when he's coming. <laughs> he's not coming today. He's not coming tomorrow. And when the Antichrist signs this covenant, you know, oh, take off three and a half years, he's coming right there. If it's at the end of the tribulation, you tick off seven years, oh, he's coming over there. If you miss it at the three and a half and he didn't come, then you oh, I was wrong, he's coming over here. So if the rapture is imminent, then the mid-trib and post-trib positions cannot be right because both of these require some things to happen first. One cannot hold to a mid-trib uh, rapture or post-trib rapture and still believe that Christ could come at any moment. So if you ever talk to someone who is a mid-trib or post-trib person, say, do you believe that Christ could come at any time? You know what the answer is? No. No, he can't. They say, well, what does it mean here? It says to be ready because we, he's going to come and we don't expect him. So... This is one of the major reasons I, I cannot see other than it must be uh, pre-tribulational. But how do the scriptures portray the rapture? We have seen in Matthew 24 already. It happens without warning. When, when the flood came, you know what happened? <laughs> they didn't expect a thing. No, I, I, I expect they laughed at Noah. It's going to rain enough to make this boat float, dream on. And then one day it began to rain, and it was too late. Well, we're looking at the pre-tribulational rapture, and we, by the way, I was thinking about this week, it is such a huge comfort. 
to understand the scriptures in this way. And I think we don't, we don't want to just try to understand it this way because it's a comfort. If it's not going to happen that way, it's a very bad thing to be comforted with something that won't happen. So I want us to go first to Luke chapter 21 and verse 36. We've looked at some general teachings that teach the uh, pre-tribulational rapture. Now we want to look at some specific verses. And this verse says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So here we are instructed to watch and pray at all times that we may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. And what things is he talking about? Well, you're familiar with Matthew 24? Know the whole history of the things that are going to come to pass? It's all those things. Watch and pray that you will be accounted worthy to escape all those things. So it tells us at least it is possible that some will escape all those things. Um, you can read in this chapter from verse 7, and we won't take time for it, and you will find the tribulation, the whole tribulation in view. And this verse indicates that it is possible to be found worthy to escape all these things. And now our question is, what does it mean to be found worthy? I believe that Revelation 17, 14 speaks of the church those who have been raptured, and they will return with Christ when he returns to make war with those who are on earth at the end of the tribulation. So listen to this verse, Revelation, uh, I think Revelation 17, verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb, that is the unbelieving world, they'll make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him, there's somebody coming with him, and those who are with him are, are called and chosen and, anybody know? Faithful. Faithful. Those who come down with Christ at the end of the tribulation are believers from the church age, as Revelation 19 shows. And they were called to salvation, became part of the elect by choosing him, and they were faithful to him to the end of their lives. Those who are faithful are the ones who are worthy to escape all these things. Some believers in this life are not faithful. Have you ever seen any of those? Have you seen some? Have you seen some like that? They are not faithful. They started out. They're not faithful. Those who have been saved by faith and are living by faith when Christ returns are those who are found worthy. Listen, listen living by faith, day by day, this is the key to the Christian life. So we've all known those who have uh, named the name of Christ. They may not really have been saved, but I'm sure some were. Some who were truly Christians have left this world for other things. They either are left uh, the Lord for other things. Maybe this world, maybe money, maybe immorality. Uh, many have left the Lord for various reasons. 
And uh, the, reasons, the reasons why we are warned to watch when it speaks of Christ's imminent return is because it is possible to stop watching. It is possible to, to, uh, it is possible to sin. We all know this, right? And it is possible to not deal with that and go further and further till strong believers are going to go to hell. Those who were strong believers. It's possible. Now, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 talked about the Thessalonians who had, uh, who had been idol worshipers and they were now serving the Lord and they were waiting with outstretched necks, waiting for Christ's return. And he would save them, deliver them from the wrath to come. Here were these new converts from heathenism and idolatry. Paul had preached Christ to them and taught them about the blessed hope uh, of the return of Christ. And these new believers were waiting with outstretched necks for Christ to return. Now, I think if, if the tribulation has to happen first, especially if it all has to run first, nobody's neck will be outstretched waiting. We'll just be backing up and trying to hope it won't come in our lifetime. So Paul says they were waiting for God's son, and then he described this son like this. First, he is the one who was raised from the dead. You know, we're coming up to, uh, to the day we call Easter, and uh, the older I get, the less I like to use this word Easter. <laughs> it bothers me. It's once there in the King James Version in the book of Acts, but it is never there in the Bible. Easter is an un ungodly name. But we refer to it, we recognize that time of year. But we're coming up to that time, which is the resurrection. Uh, and Paul had uh, described the son like this. First, he was the one who was raised from the dead. Well, we're familiar with that. But secondly, he describes him as the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that is the tribulation. You know, you know I've researched this word, and you might do that. Deliverance from the wrath. There is one reference where I find it could possibly speak of hell, although I don't think it does. And if it doesn't, it never does. It never speaks of hell as the wrath of God. And so it appears Paul had taught the Thessalonians that the tribulation is coming and Christ will deliver uh, them before that time. Now there's another interesting text, Church Revelation chapter 3. It's a very interesting text in this light. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, there, uh, uh, these are the faithful ones that we mentioned earlier, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world is the tribulation. Now notice the promise to the believer here, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. Now my mid-trib and post-trib friends say, to, say it means he will keep you through that time. He will keep you through the hour 
of trial. Well, I'm not sure how they could see that because most won't be kept through that time. Most are going to die, so I don't know what they mean. By. But the original word is not through, but ek, out of, out of. The promise here is to keep the believer out of the hour of trial. And this is a wonderful pre-tribulational promise. There's another verse uh, I have worked on, and I think we've talked about it, but I'll go through it here. First, uh, Second Thessalonians, you might want to turn there as well. By the way, you can never become too familiar with this subject. Hopefully you talk to other people, and hopefully you get to talk about these things. These are just wonderful things to talk about. A lot of people are not familiar with these things. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2, it says from verses 1 through 3, Now, brethren, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, our key words are the falling away in verse 3. There are those who hold that this verse should be translated like this. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the catching up or the rapture or the departure uh, comes first and the man of sin is revealed. And you know, for many years, I spoke of a falling away from the faith. And uh, I held this to talk ab about an apostasy, a falling away. And the reason I held to that, this word apostasia, uh, when we say apostasy, it's a transliteration of this Greek word. It's, it's, uh, um, it's used only twice as a noun, and the first time it talks about a falling away from the teachings of Moses, which is an apostasy. Uh, that's Acts 21.21. 21. So it literally means to stand away from and uh, Acts 21, uh, in Acts 21, some people were claiming that uh, the Apostle Paul was teaching people to stand away from Moses, to apostatize from the teaching of Moses. In our use of apostasy, they are saying that Paul taught the people to apostatize from Moses. Since this was the only other use of this noun in the New Testament, I therefore concluded that it must mean an apostasy here. By the way, there's a general teaching among evangelicals or pre-tribbles that uh, in the end time there will come a great falling away from the faith. Now, and, and I, would be, I would be happy to be corrected if it's there. I can't find it in the Bible. I went through all the verses where they say that. This is the prime verse for that. I've read Timothy says, uh, knowing this, that in the last days some will depart from the faith and so on. Well, anyway, this is how I taught this. And then I came uh, across an article by a man by the name of Thomas Ice in the Midnight Call magazine. And uh, there was an article called, Is the Rapture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3? Well, the first thing he did was to show that Though the noun is used only twice in the New Testament, the verb is used 15 times. If you're used to language, you know uh, verbs are made from nouns many times. And so he said the noun is used twice, but the verb is used 15 times. And listen to this. 
it can always be translated a departure, not an apostasy. Now, an apostasy is a departure, but a departure is not necessarily an apostasy. And uh, so I've got all the references, anybody who wants to research those. So I began to think. Then the noun uh, is, the noun is apostasia, and the verb is aphistimi. In the King James Version, it has been translated to depart ten times, to draw away one time, to fall away one time, to refrain one time, to withdraw oneself one time, and to de uh, depart from one time. So of the, that's the verb. Of the 15 occurrences, it has been translated to depart 11 times. The meaning of this word is clearly to depart. Now, just recently, I was given uh, some article, and uh, they talked about having researched this, and they said uh, in history past, the noun has never been used of a translation of a person from one place to another. It's always to fall away from something. I'm not familiar with that. I didn't quite agree with the article as well, but there are other views. Now, um, for those who know how words work, you will realize that this word meaning to depart uh, in the verb form would then uh, best be, tra or in the noun form, would could then be translated a departure. So in chapter 2, verse 3, instead of a falling away coming first, it's a departure. The day of Christ will not come until a departure comes first and the uh, man of sin is revealed. So I, I did change my mind on, on that. I think at this point I would say to translate this as a departure, we're talking about the rapture, is uh, probably the best way. So look at, uh, are you at chapter 2 verse 3? It says, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away or the departure comes first. And so what departure is he talking about? Well, look at verse 1. It says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, uh, that is the departure. Our gathering together to him is the departure uh, when we are gathered uh, to him to meet him in the air. Uh, then there is more, and I just pointed out the article, the departure. You know, when, it, when it, an article is used, it is used for a purpose. And in the Greek, like in English, it has various uh, reasons for it being given. So this verse we translate, it is the apostasy or the falling away or the departure. So in the original language, there are a number of different uses for the article, but the only one, the only use that fits our text as I see it is its use to denote a previous reference. So when he's talking about the departure or falling away, he's talking about something he's talked about before. There must be a previous reference to this. And uh, in neither 1st nor 2nd Thessalonians is there an apostasy ever spoken about. If it speaks of the departure uh, as the rapture, this we find in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and that is the catching up of the church. So the article, as related to the context, strongly supports 
that this verse speaks of the catching up. Uh, so we go to yet another question. If uh, this word could be translated an apostasy or a departure, how have Bible translators treated this word in history past? Well, uh, I read recently that there are those who translated this word as an apostasy long ago, but here's what Thomas Ice said in his article. If we go back as early as the time of Jerome's Latin Vulgate, we find he translated it decessio, Latin for departure. That's way, way back, translated departure. If we go back to the later English versions done before the King James Version, uh, we have it translated as a departing or a departure in these versions. Wycliffe Bible, Tyndale Bible, Coverdale Bible, Cranmer's Bible, Breacher's Bible, Biza Bible, Geneva Bible, and then in 1611, when the King James was done, it for the first time was translated as an apostasy. So translations give evidence. At least you can say this, it can be translated a departure. So I've recently read an article that denies this. So what is the upshot of all this? If the translation as a departure holds, what is it? It is this, if the day will not come unless the departure comes first, that's the day of Christ, then the rapture must happen before the tribulation begins. That is the clear and undisputable conclusion one must come to. Now let me say from all this, the evidence I have gathered so far, I, knew, I now conclude that this verse is best translated unless the departure comes first. So let me draw uh, my conclusions this far. After the Jews rejected Christ and he ascended to heaven, on the day of Pentecost, the church began. The church is a time when Jew and Gentile become one body, Ephesians 2 through 3. And the church is the bride of Christ. Israel is the wife of God and never are the two mixed up. So you have the wife of God, the, the 69 weeks and the Jews before that, and the 70th week and the, the bride of Christ in between. I believe, I believe the most consistent interpretation of Scripture is that Christ will come before the tribulation. That is, that is a wonderful and comforting uh, teaching in Scripture. Next session, we want to look at the tribulation, and that is anything but comforting. So let's uh, close with a word of prayer. I think I forgot to start with one. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, for each one listening that they would do due diligence in studying your word and uh, seeking your face and to, uh, trying to understand what it is you have communicated to us. And I thank you, Lord God, for these many truths you have given to us. And tonight we just think of Israel and the present distress, and we ask, O oh Lord God, that you would undertake for them at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.